Hey, this is Bryce Johnson from Expedition Bigfoot. You're listening to the Paranomaly Zone. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. It does happen. A ghostly apparition in the dark of night. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, that's hysteria! Hey there, ponderers of the paranormal. It is interview time in the Paranomaly Zone. Mike and I just had the absolute pleasure and privilege of talking with Professor of Anatomy and Anthropology and world-renowned Sasquatch researcher Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Meldrum's study of primates has led him from international museums to the remote badlands of South America. He also researches the fossil footprints and skeletons of early humans. His book, From Biped to Strider, examines the evolutionary timing and pattern of modern human Gates. Dr. Meldrum's tracking of Sasquatch began in 1996 when he crossed paths with an enigmatic set of 15-inch footprints in southeastern Washington. Dr. Meldrum continues to conduct collaborative laboratory and field research throughout North America as well as China and Russia and has spoken about his findings in numerous interviews, television appearances, and public and professional presentations. His book, Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science, was described by Dr. Jane Goodall as bringing quote, a much-needed level of scientific analysis to the Sasquatch Bigfoot debates. But you're not here to listen to this intro. You want to listen to the man himself. We hope you enjoy our chat with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks. Very nice to meet you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, this is a this is pretty exciting for us. We've uh, you've been on our been on our list of dream guests for for several years, so this is pretty is cool. That right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, hope I live up to the anticipation. Oh, <laughs> oh absolutely. Oh, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. As you can see, my co-host has has yeah. joined the chat. It's great to meet you. Great to see you. You have uh, I don't know if Patrick had mentioned this to you before. I got on, but you are definitely our dream guest. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was telling him, I, I hope that I can live up to the expect or the anticipation oh. and expectations, but <laughs> it should be fun. It should be fun. For uh, formalities, my name is Patrick, and obviously that is my co-host, Michael. It's, we are honored to speak with you, Dr. Meldrum. This is going to be a, a blast, and uh, we're looking forward to being educated. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> one thing you know, when 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 we do these 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 guest interviews, uh, by the way, do you refer or do you prefer to be called Doctor or or Jeff? Well, once you <laughs> once you get past the introductions and and that business, then Jeff is just fine. Jeff is just fine. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. Yeah, sometimes I call Mike Doctor every now and then, but he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, so. and I have no idea why, but it's <laughs> but I just let him go. Yeah. <laughs> So when we start our guest interviews, I usually throw out, you know, a kind of a kind of a casual, maybe maybe not necessarily off the wall type question. 
I'll, I'll just go for broke here. Do as a professor of anatomy and anthropology, you know, very esteemed, very esteemed career. Do your do any of your fellow uh, professionals, professional colleagues and stuff? Do they kind of think of think of you as like, well, you know, he's the rogue doctor. He's doing. He's off there looking at some of that, some of the crazy Sasquatch stuff every now and then. Or is that? Or do they absolutely accept what you are doing as as needed? as uh, required uh, research? Well, well, first off, I, I'm not held in such high esteem by my colleagues. I mm. mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I've done solid work and I've made, I, I think, important contributions. I have, I think I have um, championed some novel ideas that took, in, in some cases, you know, a decade or more to finally gain traction, but then eventually be accepted, be recognized. I mean, something as, as straightforward, which had a direct spin-off from my preoccupation with the, the Sasquatch, mo the model of the Sasquatch foot, that is that these early hominins were walking on flat, flexible feet with a very mobile mid-tarsal region. Um, you know, for the longest time, the the principles involved in in the discovery and early analysis of the Laetoli hominin footprints, the famous tracks in East Africa, uh, you know, described them as being basically walking like little people with feet that were indistinguishable and footprints that uh, were indistinguishable for our, from our own. And quite frankly, it, it, that was the result of, of uh, an ideological bias. I mean, there was a push that the human species could trace its origins way back and that we were essentially, I mean, once, once we were upright, we were essentially people and our, our ancestors were essentially people, not, not much different than us. And uh, anyway, uh, uh, now it's very much appreciated that, uh, that the uh, adaptation of early bipeds was bipedalism on flat, flexible feet. Mm -hmm. uh, with a non-divergent toe, but with the absence of an arch. I mean, it was, the paradigm was that you didn't have to, that the reason for losing the abduction of the big toe, losing that divergence of that thumb-like big toe was to incorporate it into a longitudinal arch. Mm. And I argued, no, it's the other way around. The mm. reason to have a divergent big toe is to climb trees. If you're not climbing trees, there's no selection pressure to maintain that late appearing development in the growth and development of the fetus and so on. And, um, and there are many advantages to not having that toe sticking out to the side like that when walking on the ground. And uh, uh, it's so, so funny, just recently there was a paper that came out where uh, renewed attention was directed to another, an additional set of footprints at the Laetoli site and uh, that has a more distinctive appearance. They're much broader, broader feet, <clears throat> different proportions. Although I have to say that, <laughs> I mean, it just shows you how, how it's everywhere. You know, you think politics is the only place where you can't trust anybody to, to not spin their message but in anthropology oh, they're spinning mm. all the time and, mm. and everyone has their narrative that they're pushing so when they show these in order to emphasize the distinction of these 
of these uh, uh, rather neglected footprints, they juxtapose them with a photo that is often used, but but rarely is it is it identified as a double step. It's it's where two footprints of two individuals have have been partially superimposed, and it gives the foot this much more elongated, more human-looking appearance. Mm-hmm. Which you know promotes that narrative. Oh, they're just little feet, like little little people walking around with feet like ours. Mm. So, so the comparison's completely misleading to begin with. But the point I tried wanted to make was they were uh, they drew attention to some of the distinguishing characteristics of this uh, of this um, other additional line of tracks, and they drew attention to a feature in the midfoot, which they identified as a mid tarsal pressure ridge. Now, the only place you'll find, if you were to Google that term, the only place you'll find reference to it anywhere in the past two two decades is my work on the Sasquatch footprints. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then my references, my comparisons of that those features as evident in the other Laetoli, the original Laetoli footprints. Um, you know, and the, you'll see all sorts of other explanations for, for that artifact, that feature. So I, I found that bemusing because <laughs> finally there's that acknowledgement, uh, but there's no citation of my references where it's mm. published. No credit to my mm. having drawn attention. I mean, it's not that I'm after credit, but it's but but this is just illustrates a point back to your original question about esteem and the mm-hmm. and the perception of my colleagues the the common uh, uh, attitude or stance the treatment is now not to criticize me not to verbally um you know castigate me but rather just ignore it mm. ignore it not even draw attention i mean this was some, one of the problems i had in uh, in my bids multiple bids to uh, for full professorship was the you know against the prejudice in my own department in college one one of the reviews it was so blatant and at that point uh it was uh, the, the uh, deans finally just stepped in but when the when the college committee ev- evaluated my record they quite intentionally the the the, the chair of the committee in particular, who was a member of my department and very critical, just just ignored anything that had to do with Sasquatch. Hmm. And then also pointed out the glaring gaps in my publication hmm. record. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, even though in the department report, one of my more sympathetic and supportive colleagues had gone to the trouble of, you know, some some people place undue credence on these ridiculous indices that uh, really aren't very helpful or useful in questions of uh, evaluation and promotion and so forth and merit merit evaluation. But he went through and calculated one of those popular statistics on my publication record, el- as she did, eliminating all such references. And still, my index was above the average for the last five promotions to full professor in our department. Hmm. Even without all those other publications, many of which were in peer-reviewed journals, were were absolutely um, uh, worthwhile and and um, and noteworthy 
um, works of uh, scholarship. Uh, so it's, you know, it's been an interesting and, and um, eye-opening um, experience. I hate to dwell on the negative. I mean, I for all those very negative experiences, and there's been a lot of them, and it's been uh, an unfortunate, there have been a lot of very positive experiences, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, up above my, my desk here, I've got this picture of where I had the opportunity to attend one of uh, Jane Goodall's um, mm. uh, presentations. And um, she was very uh, magnanimous uh, in uh, providing a little a blurb, a little uh, review or, or um, commentary to, uh, endorsement of my book when it came out mm -hmm. after reading it. And so the cover boasts that that uh, um, quotation from her, not endorsing the existence of Sasquatch, but endorsing the scientific legitimacy of asking the question and pursuing the question right. of whether such a creature exists. And I, so I've got a picture of me standing next to her uh, in front of her, you know, her banner with my book and her signature next to her, her commentary, you know, and that's, Perfect. that's a treasure. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, that's, you know, I, uh, yeah. I tell you, and, uh, you know, when George Schaller, uh, wrote the foreword to my book, um, George is, is even, he's not, doesn't necessarily have the name recognition that, that Jane, the popular name recognition amongst my colleagues. I mean, his stature, he's the naturalist's naturalist. I mean, mm -hmm. probably the most um, uh, renowned and, and uh, um, acclaimed naturalist of our of the past century. And um, he has always had uh, sort of, I don't want to say a closet, but a, an interest, a side interest in this question of, of relic hominoids, whether it's the Yeti in the Himalayas or whether it's Sasquatch in North America. And so uh, he, he appeared on uh, Sasquatch Legends Science, the documentary. And so, you know, kind of as a shot in the dark, I thought, well, hey, what have I got to lose? I, I sent a copy of the manuscript to him and, and asked him, you know, would you consider, this is, this is in part a companion volume to that documentary in which you appeared, but it's m much more. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's it far expanded, far beyond the confines of that 50-minute documentary and uh, to my uh, delight he read it <laughs> and he wrote back and he said I, i'm packing to leave the country he said i've read it it's fantastic he said well just you know two or three pages do and i said oh absolutely <laughs> two or three. You know? nice. so again he wrote and so you turn the soft cover over and the and the uh, quotation um, emblazoned on the back cover is one from that forward and again he didn't endorse the existence mm -hmm. But he pointed out that this was a, a, a very fascinating, intriguing question of, of zoology and anthropology and, and, and said very kind things about my efforts to bring scientific inquiry to bear on, objectively on this, on this question without mm -hmm. prejudice or preconception. And, um, you know, and so those, those are real visible examples, but, but I have so many conversations behind the scenes with so many different scholars and uh, you know for obvious reasons mm -hmm. i mean i'm out there as the poster child of why not to come out of the closet <laughs> if you're uh, i mean i've got a thick skin and i've managed to uh, to uh, you know uh, 
soldier through the the slings and arrows of, <laughs> of indignation or however you want to describe it but um especially for a young i mean i was idealistic enough uh perhaps a little naive to jump into the deep end of the pool even before i had tenure Mm. And and that you know you hate you don't want to I don't I don't like to characterize tenure as this as this um, you know bunker where you can once you're inside you can do whatever the heck you want sure. but it produces it it uh, or lends some job security so that the idealistic principles of academic freedom are are realized mm -hmm. <laughs> are not just uh, not just words alone but they're sure. they're acted upon uh, and uh, and they uh, provide real uh, academic uh, uh, job security scholarly job security and so um, so it was a bumpy ride you know it was a bumpy ride and I certainly would not recommend that to new graduate students or recommend that to new uh, uh, junior faculty who don't have that job security. I, I uh, encourage you, students. And oh, go ahead. I, I'm rambling. No, no, gosh, no. Oh, that's no, not that, at all. Not at all. We're we're enraptured here. Um, definitely mesmerized. Um, <laughs> do you feel like even if it's in the slightest percentage, do you feel that more and more of of your colleagues may be coming around to the possibility? Oh yes. Oh yes. Because things have changed. See. Uh, you know, I always ask myself, why Why is there this visceral rejection? I mean, why is this so right. stigmatized as a thing of the tabloid instead of mm. a possible scientific question? And then, you know, as I've learned with age and with, with uh, hindsight, um, to understand questions like that so, so often, so frequently, you have to juxtapose it against the backdrop of the times, of the history, hmm. uh, you know, of culture and society. And in the history of anthropology, see, I, I started, um, oh, gee, I started my doctoral in uh, 84. So it was kind of just on the tail end of, of a concept which during the 60s and 70s was in its heyday. And that was what was called the single species hypothesis. So you've got this young, this kind of new discipline of, of anthropology, especially physical and paleoanthropology as, as the hominin fossil record is beginning to burgeon. And the, these anthropologists, which, you know, anthropology was always considered a soft science compared to mm. math or physics and so forth, chemistry. And so to uh, lend... Uh, or, or, or to incorporate um, more interdisciplinary approaches and concepts, um, uh, anthropologists looked around and here was something that was kind of interesting. It was the niche hypothesis, which was one of the central tenets of ecology, who had in turn borrowed it from microbiology, where it emerged in the 30s, um, from a notion called the competitive exclusion principle. Fancy name, but what it simply means, everyone kind of knows this adage, one niche, one species. You can only have one species at any address out there in ecology. And this, you know, the microbiologist discovered that if they, say, grew paramecium, this was the classic textbook example that you often see in biology texts, you grow 
one species of paramecium in a petri dish and it grows happy and it's you know in its in in a particular medium repeat that medium over in this petri dish with another species and it's a happy camper but then if you combine the two what they found repeatedly is that one species would outcompete the other and drive it to extinction hmm. so evolution and ecology glommed onto that, and it became the niche, niche hypothesis, the niche concept that one species could occupy a niche. Um, if there were two, or they were brought into sympatry, uh, you know, living in a common area that that had similar needs, they one either became extinct, or there would be partitioning, there would be specialization to particular to a particular subset of resources. Well, anthropologists took this and they said, well, hmm, hominins, we're interested in hominins. They're defined by walking on two legs, bipedalism, increased brain size, and above all, culture, making tools, making material artifacts, and so on. That's a pretty narrow, um, exclusive club, so there can be only one species. And so human evolution was perceived as this unilinear single file march one species giving rise to another mm -hmm. and like i said it was reaching kind of its heyday um during and, and and it also fed into this idea and from this grew out this notion that we're all just one big happy family mm -hmm. we're all because really where do you draw the boundary between species it's kind of arbitrary um so we're one, we're really humans all the way back to our divergence from that last common ancestors shared with the great apes, chimpanzees, most likely. So in the 60s, see, when, when Ivan Sanderson, you may know of Ivan T. Sanderson, mm -hmm. who wrote this encyclopedic book, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, and the subtitle, Subhuman Species on Five Continents. Well, when he published that in 1962, it was in the heyday of the single species hypothesis. Mm. So how did anthropologists react? There was no place, uh, you know, for this these no. other five uh, proposed subspecies that that had persisted alongside us uh, to exist. They couldn't exist. Therefore, they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so his book was seen as just a, a flight of fancy. And uh, and even in 1967, see when the Roger Patterson film was shot. When that was shown to the scientists in British Columbia and then subsequently at the Smithsonian, I mean, what what could they say? Mm -hmm. No, I mean something like that just can't exist. So right. instead, they came up with all these ridiculous objections why it must be a hoax. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they were really ridiculous. We won't go into all those, but really <laughs> ridiculous. But then, see, uh, there was a shift that started to take place. First, there were these these uh, alternate forms of Australopithecines, the early human ancestors from South Africa. And originally, or initially, not originally, but initially, some tried, especially the, the ardent supporters of the single species hypothesis, said, well, these alternate forms must be males and females. And they would try to show how you look at a male gorilla and a female gorilla you know the male gorilla has this really high crest and ridging and 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 massive canines and so forth um and the you know the females more gracile so this these differences were gender differences hmm. well eventually the sample grew to the point where that could no longer be sustained 
they clearly were the same species. And I'm sorry, they clearly were distinct species, not mm -hmm. the same species. Mm -hmm. And then they thought, well, you know, those initial Australopithecines, they're really little more than bipedal apes. So we haven't really reached the hominin, the hominin adaptation yet, the hominin niche. So they kicked the can down the road, you know, and to to the appearance of, of the genus Homo. And you had and, and that that has a whole history in and of itself. But nevertheless, whether you recognize early Homo like Homo habilis and Rudolfensis or or the emergence of the with a, with a, a very distinctive discontinuity with Homo ergaster or Homo erectus, the, the African form often referred to as Homo ergaster. Um, the problem with that was no sooner was the ink dry on those proclamations than Richard Leakey describes Homo ergaster, Homo uh, habilis, Homo rudolfensis, and Paranthropus boisei all living at the same time. Mm -hmm. How can this be? Well, and then they just kicked the can further down. Well, once Homo sapiens emerged, now, you know, we are the last hominin standing. But in this in the face of, of continuing discovery of new species, so that instead of this single file lineage, now the tree starts to show branches and, and contemporaneous species coexisting at any slice of time. And so instead of a single, you know, lodgepole pine, we've got this bushy, bushy, bushy tree mm -hmm. with multiple species coexisting. And it was recognized that some of these branches persisted until dates that were much more recent than would have been acknowledged, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago as a possibility. And uh, so, you know, you've got Neanderthals coexisting with Homo sapiens. You've got um, Homo heidelbergensis. There are some specimens as potentially as young as 20,000 years in East Asia. You had the discovery of the hobbit, Homo floresiensis, which initially was somewhere between 14 and 18,000 years. Now it's gotten pushed back as they as they refine some of the stratigraphy, the dating and the cave deposits. But even at 50,000 years, I mean, you know, the, you don't, you, one thing that you have to learn from the study of, of, of the fossil record as capricious and as uh, meager as it is, that the last appearance doesn't mean that's when they went extinct. Hmm. That just happens to be when the last fossil was discovered. Right. And so, and so, you know, 50,000 years is just a snap of fingers. So, you know, if you went, got in a time machine, went back in East Asia 20, 30,000 years ago, you might bump into any one of six different species that we know of at this point. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the problem. There's no abatement to the pace of discovery of new, of new species constantly being added. So it's a much more complex story. And so now, all of a sudden, instead of, you know, flailing around, what do we do with this? What, if this thing on the Patterson-Gimlin film were real, where could we accommodate it? Well, now there's all sorts of places, you know, it could be a Gigantopithecus extant, it could be a Paranthropus extant, it, you know, there, <laughs> there, mm -hmm. there are a number of possibilities. So, again, going back to your question, with that backdrop, the, the new generation just as I kind of came up right on the tail end of the single species hypothesis, I mean, at a point when we still learned about it, but, but we, we fully recognized that there were gracile, and I mean, there still were textbooks that had this 
this comparison between gracile and robust australopithecines and trying to explain it away as male and female of a single species. Now you have students who um, are not indoctrinated by that uh, dogma mm-hmm. and and recognize the the fluidity and complexity of the of the hominin fossil record and you know uh, it wasn't too long ago time slipped by so fast it's amazing but New Scientist magazine which was which is um, uh, Britain's equivalent say of our scientific american or discover magazine sort of a semi-technical popular science magazine but they had a special issue and um, the entire issue was devoted to what the editorial board considered the top 10 questions facing human evolution uh, the study of human evolution today and number nine was are other hominins alive today mm-hmm. And I mean, I saw that and I was, unfortunately, the associate editor who, who was in charge of writing that article did an unfortunately poor job, but, mm. but I was interviewed for it. And, but, the, but I was just so excited because 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that never would have been, well, now it's been, it would be 20 years. It's been almost 10 years since that, that issue came out, but, uh, <laughs> and still it doesn't have, uh, an overt impact, you know, so that I, I still have trouble getting a abstract accepted at the physical anthropology meetings, you mm. know. And, and uh, I remember one time when it, one was rejected uh, and I pressed the issue home, there is no appeals process. So basically you're at the mercy of two reviewers and, and sometimes the, the, um, the person who's the, the uh, program organizer, the sponsor for that year, then is the arbiter. But I took it to the executive board and I said, this is ridiculous. You know, it's a total crapshoot when I submit a, an abstract and sometimes it's accepted and it's well received by the audience. There'll be, you know, just all kinds of conversation and discussion. It's always, it's always received very positive feedback. And then the next time I get two reviewers who are you know, curmudgeons and, and it's the thumbs down. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons, I mean, I, when I pressed the organizer to require the reviewers to back up their statements, the one, the one comment was simply, this is not a topic of general interest to the anthropological community. I mean, mm, go figure. No and way. yet new scientists rated it as one of the top 10 questions. Yeah. Facing paleoanthropology today, you know, and so you get this uh, disconnect. It's like, where, uh, what world is that guy living in? <laughs> Ask yeah, that question. Yeah, it's so it's because they, like I said, they have stigmatized the topic right. to the point that all they can, when they hear it, they perceive it as just something, something tabloid, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you think of when you think of what is captured on that on the, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all seen it, you know, a hundred times, and it's still just, it, it's fascinating. Do you think that those who are trying in, just in their darndest to debunk it, to prove it as something other than what people like Mike and I believe it to be, are they just basically beating their heads against the wall? I mean, are, 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 is, is it definitively 
did it definitive, definitively capture Sasquatch in your mind, or is there still questions involving that film? No, in my mind, there there is no question uh, remaining. It it I, I'm as confident of the credibility of that, the validity of that piece of footage, as I can be, short of having stood there uh, on the sandbar on that uh, afternoon. Um, yeah, no, it's it, it's it's really bizarre um, because it, as with so many things, you know, you, you see the same pattern of of uh, uh, mental. Uh, how do I put this? I haven't haven't phrased this before, quite like this, but um, mental. The only word that comes to mind is is incompetence. <laughs> I mean, or, you know, just the in the lack of acumen, the lack okay. of familiarity uh, uh, of the. I mean, I mean essentially, you come back to the word ignorance, the, mm. the lack of knowledge necessary in order to um, e evaluate it from an informed perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and oftentimes, quotes are you know taken out of context. <clears throat> out of out of uh, material context but also out of temporal context so when like i said we i guess we'll, we'll come back to it um there were there when viewed by the scientists at the smithsonian um they had no place they had no accommodation for the concept for the potential existence of another bipedal species. Therefore, it had to be false. Mm -hmm. So why? Why why was it false? So you had people say ridiculous things. There was one uh, uh, who was an expert on primate skin, and yet he says, well, look at this. Isn't this laughable? I mean, it's comical. Um, they thought to add uh, breasts, human-like breasts, on the this costume and yet um, anthropologists you know primatologists every primatologist worth of salt knows that primate breasts are typically devoid of hair and yet these are hair covered breasts well first of all the statement is just absolutely blatantly inane mm -hmm. it's wrong and all you have to do is look at pictures i mean we've got this idea of the costume off the shelf of the gorilla with the bare chest, you know, the right. uh, and, and hair surrounding. If you look at the chest of, of gorillas and of chimpanzees especially, the hair is just as dense um, uh, across their chest as it is elsewhere on their body. Mm -hmm. um, humans have hair on their chests. All you have to do to confirm that is to observe goose flesh, pimple, or goose pimples, goosebumps. Mm -hmm. What is that? That is when, when exposed to cold, um, the erector pili muscle at the base of the hair follicle contracts and raises the hair to create, you know, in, in, if there were more hair, creates a, uh, an insulation or some more, right. a dead airspace. Right. And so even though the hair now is vestigial, it's very fine, almost invisible. If you have, if a woman steps out of the shower and there's a cold breeze and she has goose flesh on her breast, that that's the testament that actually she has hair all over her her ventral surface. Mm -hmm. So anyway, things like that just ridiculous. When uh, my my favorite 
And this one is has such impact, such bearing, and 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 embodies the um, the uh, how things could be misconstrued based on um, an antiquated thinking. At the time, it wasn't antiquated, but now should be acknowledged that that's an antiquated concept. So John Napier, and I've used this multiple times, so uh, hopefully your viewers haven't heard this story before, but John Napier was a primatologist, British primatologist. He was kind of the father of studies of primate locomotion. So I was very familiar with his career, his writings, because of my um, training and studies. And um, uh, probably the more open-minded and as a result, became a bit of a lightning rod for criticism from his fellow mm. uh, anthropologists and primatologists on that panel. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was the more open-minded towards the whole thing, so much so that he, uh, and, and towards the topic in general, the question in general, he, in the, his, uh, in the twilight years the, of his career, wrote uh, one of the first academic published books, um, you know, Bigfoot, the Yeti and Sasquatch in Myth and Reality came out in 1972 or 73. And um, in it, he did conclude on the basis of the footprint evidence. And he, unfortunately, he was struggling with a very limited sample size. But he was convinced based on the footprints that there was something out there leaving track, something that needed to be identified and studied. But when it came to the Patterson-Gimlin film, he was uh, essentially thumbs down. Although he was forthright enough to acknowledge he couldn't really put his finger on a, on a good argument, except that, that he said when he looked at that figure, from the waist up, it looked very much like an ape. But yet from the waist down, it's got the hips and gluteals and the limbs of a human. Mm -hmm. And he said it was essentially, it was just nearly inconceivable to, to uh, contemplate such a hybrid of structure existing in nature. It just, you, you just, you know, it's like a, a centaur. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. It um, just didn't make sense. And so on that basis, he rejected it. Mm. Well, just a few years later, we had the discovery and announcement of Lucy. Australopithecus afarensis, the, the very likely maker of the Laetoli footprints. And uh, for the first time, we had associated pelvis and hip uh, or uh, knee joints and, and so forth of the skeleton to go with the much more complete examples, still partial, but more complete associated portions. And how were they heralded in the public press? Isn't this interesting? From the waist up, it looks essentially like a chimpanzee. Yeah. But from the waist down, it looks like a little hairy human. Well, presumably hairy, a little human. Um, isn't it curious how nature has combined in unexpected ways these suites of characteristics, this mosaic of characteristics? Well, now, wait a minute. That was the very linchpin for the only linchpin for Napier's rejection of the film. What if he had waited? What if his timeline had been such that that his book wasn't finished until several years after the discovery announcement of Lucy's mm -hmm. <laughs> inconceivable uh, <laughs> um, uh, combination of anatomy. The point you would have had is, nothing. <laughs> yeah. The point is now what we see on that screen, which was counterintuitive in 1967, 
as from a scientific perspective, where Napier, whether we, you know, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say it was justified, but it was at least understandable where Napier was coming from in his rejection. At least there was a basis for his rejection. Um, now that's gone. That's mm -hmm. gone. What we see on the film embodies exactly a suite of characteristics that were counterintuitive then, but now perfectly describe early hominin um, species, like Lucy, or even more so with its face, its deep, massive jaws, its flat face, instead of projecting prognathic lower face like a chimpanzee, like, a, like an austral, um, uh, like Lucy, like uh, Australopithecus afarensis. But if you look at the robust Australopithecines, the distinctive characteristics of her, Patty's face, are embodied in those robust Australopithecine species. Uh, if I wanted to illustrate an introductory anthrotext with a with an image of what we think robust Australopithecines may have looked like, uh, if this image didn't have the stigma, didn't have the notoriety attached to it, and ignoring the scale, bringing it down to five and a half feet tall, hmm. um, you've got it. That would work. That would work. In one of my presentations, I juxtapose some of those images with with the Patterson Kimlin <laughs> film, and you know, it's just they're they're poured out of the same mold. How would Roger or anyone coaching Roger kibitzing for him? How would they come up with that? Uh, yeah. It's just, uh, mm -hmm. and, and then you've got the objections that were just like, like the heroin, another one, which just don't make any anatomical or biomechanical sense. You know, it's just, they're embarrassing. They're literally embarrassing. There was one who said, well, isn't this silly? They've got, uh, you know, the breasts uh, suggesting it's a female and yet it walks like a man. What? It's incongruous. Yeah, it walks. I mean, it walks. It has the stride, the gait, like a male, mm -hmm. a human male. Therefore, it must be a man in a fursuit, you know, meaning that females, because of the wider hips, mm -hmm. the, the hips joints being separated relative to uh, by, uh, by compare relatively by comparison to males, when women walk, then there's a tendency for more sway of the pelvis with each step as you swing a leg the pelvis dips towards that swing there are muscles to counteract that but the muscles allow we allow a little bit of sway and so that you know that that appealing female walk is the result of the need for a larger birth canal to allow the big brain baby to pass through the pelvis mm -hmm. well if sasquatch as depicted in the Patterson-Gimlin film, has the brain the size of a gorilla, it doesn't need an enlarged birth canal. Ergo, its pelvis, the female pelvis, is essentially the same proportions as a male. Mm. And it walks like a man. Nice. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it makes perfect sense. It does. If you would stop and think about it, uh -huh. instead of just, you know, blurting Dismissing out. Dismissing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, your your uh, ignorance based on, uh, preconception of what what is is real and what isn't real, and so you know you can go through and just uh, and there there are quite a number of statements and those are some of the most uh, oft repeated. It uh, you know the fact you know, that that so film is the fact that that film has never been debunked is enough. 
for me it happened. You know, with all well, the right. you know what we are capable of nowadays, studying and analyzing any number of film, you know, no matter how old it is, but yet yeah. it still can't be one hundred percent debunked. I mean, that's just that stands out on its own. To me, it does. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It it stands up under scrutiny, under remarkable scrutiny, and and uh, just recently, um, together with Bill Munns uh, and uh, a student by the name of Isaac Tian. Isaac is a computer vision, um, I don't know what his actual title, researcher, technician, engineer, mm -hmm. and uh, more than a technician, he's an engineer, he's working on his PhD at the University of Washington. Bill Munns has decades of experience in Hollywood as a creature effects engineer, and he is uh, a remarkable uh, historian of cinematography, and, and uh, both the... Uh, from the technical side of it, from the camera and film and so forth, uh, as well as the methodologies of, uh, of um, uh, you know, what takes place behind the lens while he's creating the creature effects in front of the lens. And so uh, recently we, we um, uh, some of our, our efforts were featured prominently on a Proof is Out There episode. And, um, uh, there, there was a, a, the latest rendering of the Patterson-Gimlin film using multiple scans of different copies of the film. There's this, you know, sort of a genealogical tree of generations of copies. Mm. And, uh, and so um, they show different artifacts. People... Mm. People in the digital age may not be familiar with the old school film, uh, which is which utilizes uh, photosensitive grains or crystals in an emulsion on a plastic film backing. So it's those those chemicals are exposed to light, causes a reaction, which is then brought out through a chemical treatment and fixation. But those, but instead of little square uh, pixels, the the grains are like irregular grains of sand, mm -hmm. and so they have different shapes. And so each time you make a copy, whereas a pixel, as a single packet, can with high fidelity be transferred and copied to another digital file. When you take a, one film and, you know, usually sometimes there's contact prints or you project it onto the film either way, but the crystals don't line up one-to-one. -one. And so there are little artifacts, edges, new edges and so forth that are introduced with each and it loses, it, it becomes grainy mm -hmm. um, uh, due to that uh, introduction of artifacts. And when you blow an image up to the point where you're, where the grain can no longer sustain the detail, the, the word today would be pixelated. Mm -hmm. If your file is not of high enough resolution, when you blow it up, you know, it looks pixelated. That's the I mean, best way to describe it. Yeah. So, so by this process, what, what he, uh, Ian did was create an algorithm that identified landmarks that allowed you to very precisely align these copies so bill had scanned multiple copies so he had an archive if you were interested in one particular frame you could go to his archive and look at 12 different versions of that frame 12 different copies of that frame well by stacking those up 
you can then average out the extraneous information and emphasize the common denominators as well as you know the the spurious flex or dirt or scratches from mm -hmm. showing and so forth um, if they appear in just one out of 12 then they kind of disappear whereas the other common features um, are emphasized and it adds back to the richness and density of the image and so and then of course it allow, also allows Ian to make an extremely stabilized image uh, much more so than it by any other means and and so your not only is the image clarified but it is stabilized so that your eye can follow more easily there wasn't necessarily an aha revelation of any new observation but the things that were really only visible to a trained eye who could watch those things going you know mm -hmm. even when they're kind of bouncing around a little bit uh and could see past the noise to underlie understand the underlying anatomy and function now boy they just boom they leap off the screen at the at the uh, novice viewer and so you can make the the point so much with so much more impact right and, and that was the result i mean it was one of the uh, show's in-house critics that that you know usually makes an appearance uh offering commentary mm -hmm. he's a biologist at a california um college and uh he uh, uh the the producer was so impressed by his reaction that he had to call me right away. He calls me <laughs> as he's driving. He said, Jeff, I just had to share this with you. I just got off the phone with so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, he said, he just, he was blown away uh, by, by the uh, results. And uh, he, he said he has a reputation of being rather a, a negative, skeptical mm. individual with a lot of the stuff that makes it on to the proof is out there. I mean, they debunk a lot of stuff, but um <laughs> Man. He said, "He said you're making it really hard for me to remain skeptical here." <laughs> <laughs> go. That's a good so, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, I just just illustrated the point that uh, that it had a tremendous impact on on an informed viewer. I just thought I just thought it was funny. I mean, the the producer, yeah, he's kind of as most producers in the documentaries I've been participated in are are usually rather neutral or try to, to at least appear to be rather neutral in mm -hmm. their uh, treatment of the topic and and let it uh, go where it may. But uh, this uh, producer was impressed by that reaction. Very to good. He wanted to share that with me right away. No, no, if you can just work on the pseudo-skeptics. No, well, it. you know, and, and I, <laughs> you know, my, my goal is not to, I mean, it never has been to, uh, to, um, attract adherence to to convert right people it's to present present the evidence in a way that they can make up their minds and 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 many skeptics uh many ardent skeptics <laughs> who, who pound that key or, or wear a sometimes they wear a bright red armband with an s on it <laughs> you know they uh they um are not likely to be swayed they have their own pet um objection or criticism it seems to the exclusion of all else but um for those who are curious who are open-minded who really want to know what the evidence is this is a, a a great step forward i think 
No, so, Jeff, I know we have limited time. Mm -hmm. um, if, sure. we, if we can hold on to you for another like 10 minutes, that'd be great. Oh, sure. Um, I, we do yeah, have I'm... a couple of questions from listeners I wanted to throw out there Please. before um, I forget. <laughs> Please. Um, one in particular, and this is from a longtime listener, a friend of the show, Pandora Blackthorn. Uh, she asked, she goes, even though we still have vast areas of undeveloped land in the States, have there been instances where development projects have unearthed evidence of Bigfoot? And then she also uh, adds, how does climate change affect changes in Bigfoot habitats, such as loss of forest, increased temps, loss of water right. sources? Well, sure. I mean, obviously, there's, uh, as with any species of wildlife that we might discuss, the the press of population growth and development and uh, habitat degradation is certainly, uh, I'm, I'm sure, has a, a bearing. I think uh, all all indications suggest that uh, that this species is a very generalized, large, omnivorous primate, and as such, is probably quite adaptive, adaptable to um, a variety of resources. Uh, but but I mean, there's there's no question that, that there is an impact. We just don't have the data to, mm. to uh, confirm that. I mean, obviously, uh, we can't confirm the existence of the creature, let alone the impact that we're having on it. I would suspect that certainly climate change, which is affecting uh, these habitats, you know, the, the protracted droughts. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the field and in some areas, particularly in the Intermountain West, the protracted drought reduces the resistance of the forest to insect infestation and which also then contributes to death and and even more uh, fuels for wildfires but you know you'll look out across a panorama and as much as a third to two-thirds of the trees are dead mm. there's just a huge mm -hmm. die-off uh, that's taken place and and the fires honestly the fires are really uh, one of nature's ways to try to eradicate the, the infestation. It's a drastic measure. I mean, it's like, you know, cutting off an arm to um, save the body. But um, um, but sure, I mean, I, I, I suspect that changes in, in, uh, in temperature and so forth and, and rainfall, I mean, there's no question we're in, in, in a protracted pattern of drought I, I must say that I have to laugh at the lengths to which the mainstream media weather people go to try to uh, promote the fact that it gets hot in the summer as evidence of climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as if, as if this kind of heat wave has never happened before, right. when in fact, you only have to go back 40 years and you see the same, the same figures, the same things, you know, what was it climate change 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe there was that trend, but I mean, the point is there are cycles and, and, uh, Absolutely. Uh, and so, um, what the long-term consequences are for, for wildlife, I mean, we, uh, the, the Arctic, uh, the Arctic uh, ice fields were supposed to be gone by now, and polar bears were supposed to be extinct, according to the um, the most vocal proponents of global climate change. 
and yet the ice is at, at higher levels uh, and more extensive in pop bear population have increased. So um, again, I, I'm just I'm not I'm not uh, di uh, uh, discounting the concerns over uh, over climate change. I'm just uh, I'm one of those who just does not uh, put a lot of stock in the crying wolf uh, to the extreme, but. Uh, we might see things like uh, what observations of other forms of wildlife re retracting to um, higher elevations to avoid the, the heat and the um, drought. Uh, we may see fragmentation of habitat, which may disrupt gene flow. We've got an animal that is very mobile, however, and, um, you know, I, I've always suggested that those sightings in uh, in um, atypical locations could well be dispersing um, young adult uh, individuals mm. who are pushed out of one natal region and, and have to strike out on their own. And so sometimes, I mean, I think they're capable of, of covering ground. I mean, we've had some um, headline catching examples of uh, there was a wolverine here in eastern Idaho that was uh, radio collared, and I guess he just really took offense at that uh, <laughs> as, as an intrusion, and he struck off. and In the in the matter of two weeks, he covered like 250, 300 miles, <laughs> and made made it from Yellowstone all the way down almost to uh, a ridge overlooking Pocatello, and then promptly turned around and went back. <laughs> so I mean, again, if you've got a little quadrupedal creature the size of a, a small dog that covers that kind of terrain a sasquatch striking out across uh, oh, yeah. a stretch of uh, of uh, eastern oregon desert you know sagebrush step at night to get from point a to point b is is not uh, out of the realm of possibility that's very oh, yeah, absolutely yeah. Anyway, um a question I'll try to be more succinct <laughs> here, <but. laughs> um uh this is from the the big bigfoot influencers and they are asking they say ask jeff about how he met Paul Freeman and how does he feel about Todd Standing's research? Yeah, well, Paul, I met uh, because when I was I was traveling down to Northern California with Richard Greenwell to uh, he he had invited me to participate in 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 an analysis of the what became known as the Redwoods video. Yes. On the way home from that very interesting experience, he pulls out of his briefcase a little booklet that had been published by Vance Orchard who was a, a newspaper columnist who wrote an outdoor columns column in um, uh, several that was carried in several of the regional newspapers around Walla Walla and uh, he asked me if I would write a book review Paul's work was featured therein as it was also featured in um, Grover Krantz's book I mean mm -hmm. his the the uh, casts that uh, Krantz had duplicated from Paul's collection, and uh, given the proximity of the blues there to uh, um, to uh, Pullman, Washington, where Krantz was um, affiliated with their, or at the uh, Washington State University, meant that those um, artifacts featured prominently. So it was it was through my um, 
writing the book review, reviewing that book that I got into contact with Paul, as well as other personalities, Wes Summerlin, Van Chord, Porchard, Bill Lowry in the Walla Walla area, and, uh, and then happened to pay a surprise visit. Mm-hmm. So um, my, my estimation of Paul is that largely credible. Paul, though, was not a scientist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the non-scientific approach to getting at something or, or presenting something or solving a, a problem is sometimes different. Yes, and, yes. Uh, yes. has a different standard of evidence. And I think sometimes Paul justified the means by the end. Mm. And so if, uh, you know, he was convinced Sasquatch existed, and if, if uh, you know, doctoring something a little bit, uh, something like uh, you know, a footprint had collapsed. I, I, you know, a scientist would never think to to uh, embellish in order to restore that right. dam- damaged footprint. But we had examples of obviously human fingertip prints, mm-hmm. fingerprints in the wrong places in in tracks, and so some immediately jumped. Oh, he's faking it. No, I think it was just a matter because I've seen it so many times with people who just cannot resist the impulse when they see a footprint cast to put their hand in it. Right, right. Just, you know, to compare size or whatever. In this case, if he was getting ready to make a cast and, and when, you know, in the interim, something had collapsed or someone had stepped next to it, I think he wouldn't have thought twice about tamping down the sidewall or, you know, diking it up a little bit with his hands. Now, Todd standing, again, there was, a, I, I, I had heard some, just some passing things. I had seen his um, very controversial close-up images of the faces of, uh, right. and uh, so he, when he extended an invitation um, to go up to Canada, uh, I took him up on it. I thought it was an opportunity, especially when I heard that Dr. Bindernagel was, going to go as well mm. i i felt in very good company yeah and so uh you know it was an opportunity to to take a look and be able to evaluate some of his evidence firsthand i still harbor those reservations there are things the in paul's behavior that give me pause mm-hmm. you know but and, and there's a lot of uh <laughs> there's just he, he's he's uh drawn a lot of attention to himself because this is one of the most common questions that I get in, in all settings is okay. what do you think about Todd standing? And so my, my attitude sort of is, I mean, uh, there, there were some interesting things to happen. As I said, I have a remark, I have a, a notable reservations about his, some of his evidence. Some of it intrigues me. Some of it is, is uh, problematic, but the criticisms that have been leveled have also been, really on, on shaky footing. That's the thing. There was a yeah. report that was written where they picked apart and I went through it, you know, and just pointed out example, a counter example after counter example that um, refuted their criticism, whether it was, you know, the shape of the eye or a, a line under the nose, you know, there were, and I, my, my point is do not take this as an endorsement, mm-hmm. but if you're going to, point to a smoking gun you better have better arguments than these great perfectly said <laughs> and so yeah now i i would be remiss uh we have to uh, you know, i know you're uh, need to move on here jeff and we can't thank you enough again but i had to pull this out 
This is I, sure. one of my prized possessions. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. The Sasquatch Field Guide by Dr. Yeah. Jeff Belgium. There's, you know, there's so much information just in this little pamphlet here. I highly yeah. recommend everyone go and check this out. It includes that Jane Goodall quote here. Um, uh, Jane Goodall quote referring to your book Sasquatch Legend Meets Science: A Much Needed Level of Scientific Analysis to the Sasquatch Bigfoot debate. So, I mean, that's, like you said, that's in high standing right there. Um, well, Doctor, this has been an absolute blast for us. Um, we could listen to you for, for days and days. Uh, yeah. I, can, I, have, I imagine your courses, I would, I would assume that your courses are always overflowing with uh, enthralled students. I, I would, if I could enroll in the course of yours, I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. No, absolutely. That, 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 that's... Unfortunately, they're not always because there w there was a period of time when there were uh, active lobbyists in my department who tried to dissuade students from taking my courses. Oh no! Yeah. Mm. So nope, so I, I, I after a lot of uh, you know um, prodding, I uh, and in anticipation of writing the sequel to Sasquatch Legend Science, I thought, what a great way to help nail down the content and the outline if I'm forced to prepare lectures on that topic. So I, I offered an experimental course mm -hmm. and there, and I was expecting it to be, you know, like you said, a gate buster yeah. because of all of the queries that had come in previously, as it turned out due to those active lobbyists, people tearing down um, the posters advertising the course because it wasn't on the books. It was a special, you know, offerings course of, uh, there were rumors that one of my most vocal critics on campus had actually encouraged students to sign up for the course, heckle me for the first two weeks, and oh, then no. drop it before the no, demo. Boy. As it turns out, I ended up with 12 students taking the course, no anthro students, no, no biology students mm. at all. They were mm. students with uh, general interest in the topic. Uh, that took, and we had a great time. I mean, it was a great experience and a very productive one. Absolutely, but it was also a sad commentary on the on that the is. state of affairs in uh, in my college. Ah. So, yeah. Well, a, well, Mike and I will head down there and we'll help you out in any way. <laughs> oh, I know that'd be absolutely yeah. fabulous. I do have one quick question. Yes, yeah, I, I've asked uh, other some of our other uh, Bigfoot experts on and uh may have asked ron moorhead but the movie harry and the hendersons have you seen it and what did you think <laughs> oh sure of course i've seen it in, in fact most recently it's funny because i uh you know i i introduced uh uh in one one talk where i talk about my first exposure to the subject of bigfoot which was the patterson gimlin film when it was shown in in spokane when i was about 11 and so i showed my my uh class or my uh, you know my school picture from there and i'm you know this geeky looking guy <laughs> with the big <laughs> horn rim glasses and but then uh if you if you flash or google um Heron the hendersons and ernie henderson the boy uh we could have been twins oh, <laughs> <really>? <laughs> his, his hair is even parted on the same side the same cowlick i used to have and no, and, the, and the glasses and all so yeah no i i thought that you know of all the films out because so much this is the problem uh, we've had we've had some the potential from really interesting projects with high profile um 
uh, production companies, Legendary Pictures, for example, right right about the time they first went onto the Warner Brothers lot, and Thomas Tull, you know, landed that huge contract with Warner Brothers. He wanted to do a Sasquatch movie, mm. a good quality movie, and and actually flew me down to Salt Lake uh, to Los Angeles, and um, and I met with his creative team, and I. Actually, had a PowerPoint, you know, with different conceptual ideas and background about Sasquatch and so forth. But the problem is, they kept hiring writers, script writers that uh, were from the slasher thriller oh. horror. Oh yeah, genre. yeah. And I said, ah, you, you know, you don't get it. Nope. You right. want an action adventure? That's fine. You know, that's that's great. You really want to do that, but not the not the pulling Sasquatch pulling people's <laughs> arms out of their sockets. And yeah. And so Harry and the Hendersons was a great, you know, exploration of, of, of many topics and, and development of familiar characters, you know, uh, uh, nods to uh, some prominent people like Rene DeHinden and John Green. And oh, sure. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it um, it was fun. It was a yep. fun movie. Do a lot you, of fun. You know, um, uh, Mike mentioned Ron Moorhead's name. But do you? What are your thoughts on the audio recordings, the alleged audio recordings of Sasquatch vocalizations? I mean, they, yeah. we've all heard I, them, and we're we're, right. we're like, what is that? I've I've always found them intriguing, and I I know Ron uh, well, and uh, uh, I mean, he's taken a departure into this into this, uh, uh, in my opinion, somewhat misguided notion about quantum, the role of quantum mm -hmm. physics in in uh, the Sasquatch phenomenon, but uh, and. Uh, likewise, the um, Scott Nelson's work, I respect his credentials and everything he brings to the table. I disagree fundamentally with some of his interpretations. I don't think that there is language there, at least not language like not a pigeon English. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't think these creatures communicate on, on any level close to Homo sapiens. It might be a bit more elaborate than than the repertoire of a chimpanzee, but not much. Okay. I don't think not by much. I mean, their upright posture alone may have effects on the larynx and pharynx that allow for the um, a greater diversity of, uh, of of vocalization. But I mean, ultimately, it's up here. It's got to be. You can have the plumbing. If you don't have the wiring, it uh, the hard wiring, it doesn't do you any good. So the other he hesitation, and uh, um, Ron doesn't like it when I bring this up, but you know, for me, the bottom line is the footprint evidence. That's the corroborating. That's the that's the litmus test. And and unfortunately, if you research the footprints that have been documented associated with that incident, they are not typical Sasquatch footprints. And mm. Whether that says something, I mean, or, or you can interpret that any way you want. Sure. Uh, you know, depending without without further information, uh, if you're depending on your inclinations and persuasions, but um, uh, but otherwise, I think uh, I, I think fundamentally, it's it's a very intriguing and uh, credible um, set of circumstances and resulting recordings. I just think some of the interpretations that have come out as a result are. Uh, are a little difficult to um, to uh, acknowledge. It made for a extremely interesting interesting discussion. That's for sure. Oh, it does. oh sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We we, uh, we enjoyed talking to him quite a bit. Oh yeah. yeah. 
most most certainly. Well, Jeff, again, Dr. Meldrum, this has been an honor and a pr- uh, privilege. Great honor. We can't and thank you. Can't thank you enough. Um, again, I'll put the I'll put the show together. It'll be published later this evening. Uh, I encourage our listeners go check out uh, Sasquatchman Legend Meet Science uh, biped to Strider. You co- you're co editor of that. There's a Bigfoot documentary available on Voodoo. Discovering Bigfoot, uh, Dr. Meldrum, you were involved heavily in that. Um, I feel like we could have gone, gone on and on about so many things, but time is limited. Um, where can people find you? Uh, what is up next for, for Dr. Jeff Meldrum? Yeah. Well, I don't have a web page per se other than my faculty, but my Facebook page at under my full name, Don Jeffrey Meldrum, I try to keep um, any announcements of upcoming events um, I think the next one that's on the calendar is uh, when I'm going to Vernal, Utah in uh, early September. Um, but um, yeah, the summer, I'm just going to finish out the summer. I've got yeah. a, 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 a string of writing projects that are vying for attention and uh, deadlines to meet and uh, uh prospects for a couple of grant proposals I'm writing maybe to uh, uh, I still have a lot of work to archive and, and maximize the be- the uh, utility of the footprint cast collection so that's high on the priority as well and then hopefully by next summer we'll maybe be ready to undertake some environmental DNA survey work and uh, see if we can get some uh, uh, proper DNA analysis, thorough and systematically complete Excellent. DNA analysis. Excellent. Thank Perfect. you, sir. Thank you, sir. Man, I can't thank you enough. And Mike yeah. and I, we've had yeah. a blast, Jeff. That, and I can great. I can speak for both of us. I know that we are forever a fan. Yes. <laughs> well, I hope I hope we were able to cover enough ground. I know I it. These are stories that uh, you you kind of turn the spigot and it's hard to turn it back off. And, oh, yeah. And therefore, we don't we don't get to cover as a, as much of a range of topics and sometimes get. Uh, I mean, I think it's important information. It important is insight into the yeah. machinations of what goes on and why, especially the notion of why the science is, uh, has taken such a uh, an adversarial stance towards this, but. Um, you know, like I said, I hate to dwell on the negative and there's so many fascinating, uh, so many fascinating uh, topics uh, of discussion. You know, like you say, we could Absolutely. talk all night. And yeah. Scratch the surface. So yeah. anytime in the future, if you want to. Oh my gosh. Part, no. part two. We appreciate that. Part two. Um, I'll be in touch. <laughs> I'll be in touch, uh, doctor. Um, I'll let you know when it's published. And again, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good night, sir. All right. Thanks. Take care.